Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, December 18th. In today's news, the head of the FISA court is piping mad about the abuses outlined in that IG report. Voter purges in Georgia, Wisconsin, and Ohio threatened to undermine the integrity of the 2020 election. And the death toll from the deadliest mass shooting in modern American history continues to rise two years later. But first, the big idea. President Trump, on the eve of his expected impeachment, lit into congressional Democrats for what he deemed a perversion of justice and an attempted coup, predicting Tuesday in a rambling and rageful letter that voters would punish Democrats and history would vindicate him. The president's written diatribe was delivered as the House set the stage for a historic floor debate and an impeachment vote on Wednesday evening, a momentous act that is nonetheless likely to be devoid of suspense, as tribal partisanship in the Capitol has made the outcome a near certainty. House Democrats stood largely united on Tuesday in their march to pass two articles of impeachment for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, which would make Trump the third president in U.S. history of 45 to be impeached. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said lawmakers are ready to exercise one of the most solemn powers granted to them by the Constitution, describing the vote in a letter to her Democratic colleagues as an act of moral courage. Trump acknowledged that his own six-page letter addressed to Pelosi will not alter the trajectory of the proceedings, but he registered his objections in characteristically fiery fashion with the stated intent of memorializing his sentiments for the historical record. The missive on White House stationery, which aides said was largely Trump's own handiwork, called the impeachment process words like invalid, spiteful, egregious, meritless, terrible, disingenuous, baseless, preposterous, dangerous, fake, fantasy, and illegal. Trump was particularly scathing in his personal denunciation of Pelosi. He accused the House Speaker, who describes herself as a devout Catholic, of lying when she said that she prays for him and of disrespecting Americans with what he called a false display of solemnity. Trump worked on this letter for more than a week, revising drafts with policy advisor Stephen Miller and legislative affairs director Eric Uland. The president did not want White House lawyers to review it until the final stages because he correctly predicted that some of them would warn him against including certain passages that they view as problematic for his legal defense. Pelosi called the letter ridiculous. It not only reflects Trump's sense of victimhood, it also serves as a warning shot 11 months from the next election. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Minority Leader Chuck Schumer engaged in a standoff yesterday as the Senate prepares to recess for the holidays, arguing through public statements and media interviews rather than meeting face-to-face. McConnell rejected Schumer's call to subpoena witnesses for the trial, including acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney and former National Security Advisor John Bolton, both of whom refused to testify in the House inquiry. Schumer responded in an interview with us that Republicans have not given one solid reason, one simple reason, why the administration witnesses should not be called. McConnell also reiterated his intent to shape the trial in Trump's favor and rejected criticism that he's abandoning his sworn duty to be impartial. McConnell told reporters, quote, I'm not an impartial juror. This is a political process. Trump's legal team is working to line up three or so lawyers to defend the president in the upcoming trial and has contacted Harvard Law professor Alan Dershowitz as one possibility. The talks are in a tentative stage. 
Trump's advisors expect Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, to give an opening statement in the president's defense. And they're considering adding as many as two other personal lawyers who would summarize the evidence and then defend Trump in a closing argument. Trump's longtime lawyer, Jay Sekulow, who represented him throughout the Bob Mueller investigation, is a top contender for the role of closer, but he may have to defer to others. Meanwhile, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff wrote in a letter yesterday that Vice President Pence has refused to declassify testimony that is directly relevant to the impeachment debate, highlighting questions about what Pence said on a September 18th phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. In a letter to Pence, Schiff wrote that classified witness testimony gathered during the inquiry raises profound questions about his knowledge of the president's scheme to solicit Ukraine's interference in the 2020 election. A spokeswoman for Pence declined to comment. Last night, demonstrators, meanwhile, in big cities and small towns from coast to coast rallied for Trump's impeachment. Protesters in the dark of a snowy New England evening chanted, Dump Trump, while those marching in the warmth of southern Florida brandished signs reading, impeach Putin's puppet. In Republican-dominated Kansas, they repeated the mantra, country over party. In Texas, they fretted that despite the House's vote, Trump will get away with it all. Organizers said there were more than 600 protests nationwide, from Hawaii to Maine. In many places, the rallies functioned less as a chance to vent about Trump's Ukraine dealings, the matter for which he faces impeachment, than as an opportunity for collective catharsis over the entire track record of a president disapproved of by slightly more than half the country. In New York's Times Square, a crowd estimated in the thousands demonstrated, marching through the streets bearing a giant banner emblazoned with a clause from the Constitution that deals with impeachment. But most rallies drew dozens or at most hundreds. Their relatively modest size reflected the difficulty that Trump's opponents face in mobilizing voters to eject the president when the chances of doing that before the 2020 election appear vanishingly small. The protests were collectively dubbed the Nobody is Above the Law demonstrations, and they were coordinated by MoveOn.org. Ironically, that group got its start 21 years ago to protest against Bill Clinton's impeachment. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Wednesday. Number one, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court ordered the government to explain what the FBI will do to ensure the Bureau does not mislead judges again when applying for surveillance orders like those used in the 2016 investigation of the Trump campaign. The four-page order from Judge Rosemary Collier, the presiding judge of the secretive court, publicly rebuked the FBI for 17 omissions and errors that were contained in applications to monitor the electronic communications of Carter Page, a former Trump foreign policy advisor. FBI Director Chris Wray already has ordered more than 40 changes to address the issues raised in the Inspector General's report that was issued last week, which identified those 17 omissions and errors. Collier is the same judge who signed the first surveillance application for Page sought by the FBI back in October 2016. The judge says that when FBI agents and lawyers misled the Justice Department, they were also misleading her. In other news related to the Russia investigation, Rick Gates, Trump's deputy campaign chairman in 2016, was sentenced to 45 days in prison for conspiracy and lying to the FBI during the Mueller probe. 
His crimes could have landed him in jail for six years, but he was given leniency for providing key evidence after he got caught. Gates will be allowed to serve his sentence on weekends. He can check into the can on Friday night and get out on Sunday night to go to work on Monday. Gates's former business partner, Paul Manafort, meanwhile, has been hospitalized in Pennsylvania, but his attorney says he's in stable condition. Apparently, it's some kind of coronary problem. The longtime lobbyist and Trump's former campaign chairman is serving a seven and a half year sentence. Number two, overnight, while we were sleeping, the number of registered voters in Georgia shrank by more than 300,000 in a contested but court sanctioned action that could redefine the 2020 election. State officials have downplayed the mass cancellation, arguing it's routine list maintenance, but others say the practice amounts to a large-scale and undemocratic voter purge, which comes just over three months before Georgia's presidential primaries and disproportionately harms African Americans. This week, a federal judge allowed the Secretary of State's office to remove about 4% of registered voters from the rolls, a move officials say is aimed at those who have recently died or moved out of the state. But there were also more than 120,000 people included in that call simply because they haven't voted since 2012 when Barack Obama was on the ballot or responded to a recent mailing from the state. In Wisconsin on Friday, a conservative judge ordered the state to remove up to 234,000 people from its registered voter list after a GOP-affiliated group filed a lawsuit arguing that anyone who didn't respond to an election commission letter seeking address confirmation should be subject to being purged. Wisconsin's Democratic Attorney General is appealing that decision, and the state's League of Women Voters has filed a federal lawsuit to stop it from taking effect. In an attempted purge earlier this year, Ohio's Secretary of State identified 235,000 names and addresses to be removed from the rolls, saying the people flagged were dead, living outside the state, or duplicates. But Ohio, which won a major U.S. Supreme Court decision just last year that found its so-called use-it-or-lose-it law was constitutional, was in the wrong. It turns out one in five names on that list, so 40,000 people, should not have been removed. Among them, Jen Miller, the director of the League of Women Voters of Ohio, an activist who literally spends all of her days registering people to vote and participated in three local elections last year. And a new Associated Press investigation finds that thousands of Ohio voters were held up or stymied in their efforts last year to get absentee ballots for the general election because of missing or mismatched signatures on their ballot applications. The signature requirement is seen by voting rights activists as a recipe for disenfranchisement. It's a cumbersome addition to an already stringent voter ID system. The requirement is not for the absentee ballot itself, which faces a different battery of requirements, but merely for the application to request one. Number three, it really pains me to share this one. A woman who was paralyzed during the 2017 Las Vegas massacre passed away. Kimberly Gervais, 57, was shot and suffered a spinal injury in the October 1st, 2017 shooting at the music festival outside the Mandalay Bay Hotel. 58 other people were killed that night, and hundreds more were wounded in the deadliest mass shooting in modern American history. A local coroner has ruled that her death was a consequence of that shooting. Her sister, Dana Sarvella, said the stress from the injuries became too much for her body to handle. Dana said, even though her sister was paralyzed from the neck up, 
She could feel all the pain. Kimberly went to the festival with two friends. One survived while she watched the other die. Dana said that Kimberly lost her zest for life because of her injuries, and she was never the same person, mentally or physically. She was a mother of two who raised her daughters as a single mom after her husband died tragically in 2000. Let's keep Kimberly and all the other victims of gun violence, as well as their families, in our hearts this holiday season. And that's the Daily 202 for Wednesday, December 18th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. If you want to get more news about the impeachment process, you can subscribe to a podcast feed from The Washington Post with all our updates in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. Find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. 